again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, and I am joined once again and always by my colleague, the director of the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Good to see you, sir. Jack, it's good to see you, too. Glad to be back in town. All right, you were out of town. I believe you were at the Labrie Conference up in St. Louis. That's right. On, on campus at Covenant Seminary, we had a great time with my old friends, Jock and Allison McGregor and Bill Edgar from Westminster Seminary and uh, and Dick Kyes, who, was the, uh, who has been the, uh, the leader of the... Uh, uh, Boston branch of Labrie, Southborough branch of Labrie for many, many years. Brilliant fellows and always good to see them. I think it went very well. Of course, our kids had a chance to uh, be at the Ebenezer Retreat Center that's run by Jock and Allison for uh, a week and a half or so, and they got to enjoy uh, the library there and uh, company with a lot of other people. And so it was a very good time, I think. Yeah, since you've been gone, it got finally got cooler outside. It's the fall now. Finally, it? finally. Yeah. I mean, with Memphis, you can't tell. It may like go up next week to like ninety degrees for some reason. Yeah, uh, frailty. Thy name is Memphis weather, but <laughs> right. but it right. is very nicely chilled outside. It feels autumnal, and it's a great day for a podcast. If I say so myself. Yeah, I think so too. It's pretty soon. I just found a place where we can go and get uh, firewood. By the way, so uh, next few uh, sessions, we're going to be having fires in the fireplace. So that'll be fun. We're here in my living room right now, in fact. Now, I recall I recall last week, I remember you brought up a term that was big last year. Last year was kind of a raucous uh, time because of the election and oh, right, social right. and cultural stuff was going on. Um, but Oxford, I think Oxford English Dictionary had their word of the year. Yes. And it was post-truth. Post-truth, with a hyphen. With a hyphen. Post-truth. Post-truth. As if the Western world wasn't post enough with post-modern and post-Christian and post-human. Post-structuralist. Or whatever. We now have post-truth. Yes. Which, as a term, frustrated, like, my philosopher friend, who was like, how, what is, he took it very, very, like, stringently, you know, post-truth. How can, what does that even mean? Is that statement true or something like that? (laughs) But from what I understand, uh, the definition of post-truth is a time when uh, facts and uh, objective facts and information don't sway people. What sways them more is their emotions and their feelings rather than facts. Like that's, that's what it means to have to be post-truth. That's right. The news media made a big deal about the word, and Oxford English Dictionary made it the word of the year. For some of us who are pretentious and snotty, we wonder <laughs> where these people have been for the last 30 or 40 years because narrative, which is really what this is, is like narrative, the story that gets told, yes. that tugs, that pulls at the heart, wins the sentiments. That's been going on for like 30 or 40 years easily in the academy, and then it seeped into pop culture, and now it's everywhere. I mean, every Disney princess follows their heart in some capacity. <laughs> right. Every guru and guide in an animated show wants to tell you their best advice they can give you is to follow your heart, which is them saying, I have no advice to give you, mm-hmm. which is interesting to say. But this post-truth thing of just sort of following your own star and following your own feelings has been around for a long time, but it seems to have come to a head in some way. Uh, electorally, and if we follow the stream of things where beliefs shape culture and culture shapes politics, then it seems to have come all the way downstream in a lot of ways. I think the new shock, the reason it's shocking now, of course, is that that the election went the way it did, and the Brexit election went the way it did uh, last year as well. And uh, I think people are shocked to think that philosophies 
that they have toyed with for the last 30 or 40 years in the universities actually have an effect on uh, down the road on, on uh, the, the, the practical uh, political uh, landscape. So, yeah, it, it, the fact that, uh, that Donald Trump won this election, the fact that the Brits uh, voted to leave the EU, uh, both of those things uh, shocked uh, the, the the intelligentsia, the mm-hmm. the academics, the chattering the, classes. Uh, the, yeah, and uh, I think, uh, frankly, I think they they didn't expect it. They thought, you know, this is this is not going to happen that way. Everybody understands uh, what what uh, post truth is in a kind of theoretical way, but but uh, to actually think that people could be swayed this. The only explanation for a Brexit or for a Donald Trump election is that people have dismissed the idea of truth. That's what I hear from the, from the sure. left. Or else that, um, I mean, if it's a world based, if we're in a world that's now like narrative centered, where what matters is the story you tell and how it pulls people makes them feel right there was there's maybe was an assumption that the story that was being told was particularly one way but it turned out no that wasn't the only story being told and how did that happen right and there was um an article i read in the atlantic i can't remember who it was by and but the title was something along the lines of how facebook changed american democracy Mm. and it was dealing with it was it was it was dealing with this issue um, how well, it was dealing with the shock of these things, particularly of Trump's surprise win. I'll be honest; even I didn't think it was going to win. Right, I no, didn't think no, it was going to happen. Right. Uh, but it it did happen, and they're like, "How did this happen? How did nobody see this coming?" And they pin the tail on Facebook, not in necessarily a very like pejorative way or a, uh, a accusatory way. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But they did say. In Facebook in 2013, they introduced the idea of the news feed, which those of us, if you've been on Facebook, you understand what that is. There's your page, which back when Facebook first started, the page was what Facebook was. You had your page. Right. People yeah. could visit your page. Right. But then in about 2013, Facebook introduced the idea of the news feed, where you could see all people's posts and news articles and videos and all kinds of things get aggregated all together. And you could just see them on a row and scroll through them mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. It was a way for them to kind of take a bite out of Twitter and YouTube sort of market. Because here's a place where you can scroll through things and oh, see videos sure, and stuff sure. like that. And the thing about it, this is what the article said. Well, it was one of the things the article said is that the news feed is built on an algorithm that if you like something or you comment on something or if you share it, that's like the big one. Mm-hmm. You share it, the algorithm will uh, take that into account and then start trying to find things that kind of match the things you like, comment, or share on, push them more into your feed, push them more to the top, and things you don't really like or comment or share or seem to pay attention to, they eventually kind of get pushed out. Uh-huh. And the idea is to create a completely customizable information source, basically. And it sounded very appealing to have such a customizable thing, you know, that fits to your individual needs, your individual wants out of it. But the thing that Atlantic pointed out is that people's ability to customize that way meant that they were able to create very effective sealed off little bubbles for Mm, themselves. Right. Because of the, I basically with this algorithm, you could, if you keep, if you only like comment and share on stuff that say is of only one particular political leaning, like left, right, doesn't matter which, the algorithm effectively could 
purge your newsfeed of any dissenting voice, any opposite voice. The only thing on there is stuff that just confirms what you already think. Ostensibly making a, an echo chamber of only your favorite opinions. Right. And the thing is, is that nobody would really know except you and maybe the algorithm. And also ads. Advertisement is another thing that they, that right. they, that they uh, also the algorithm works with. So just you and maybe advertising, that's it. And that's information that pundits and pollsters don't have access to. And so it doesn't matter that like they were saying things or they people would say whatever they did when they talked to pollsters on phones, people were watching on Facebook and reading on Facebook whatever they were watching. And it's not it's information they have no access to, but it's information that's completely customizable. And that idea of like dark information, you know, that you can keep your information, you can customize it completely to yourself and nobody else can know about it, they believe that's part of what surprised everyone. Mm. Mm. Another big surprise was, and this is this connects to like what I said, like maybe they thought they knew what story was going out there. It seemed to be a, there was a big assumption in like Silicon Valley techie types and kind of standard progressivist academics and sort of typical mainstream journalists that the internet, with few exceptions, the internet was the domain of progressivism. That it was its domain. Uh-huh. Sure, there were there were you know there were ultra right loonies and cranks out there but they've mainly stayed to 4chan or the dark web or something like that Mm -hmm. social media twitter all that stuff belongs to progressivism it belongs to us this is where we preach the gospel of you know subverting power structures to the glory of social justice amen kind of thing this is this is where it is and the thought that that medium could actually be used against them yes with the rise of like breitbart or alternative media but even more specifically uh, the newsfeed way of customizing something where their progressivist voice and agenda could be effectively shut out. Mm-hmm. They, for some reason, didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. They, they were, that surprised mm-hmm. them. It could be that if the, you know, if the left thinks that uh, it already owns all the cable news channels for the most part and all of the newspapers, the New York Times, the LA Times, the it, New York Post, Washington Post, it has a lock on culture. It's kind of lock on everything on the academic world, you know, in the on the most uh, uh, college campuses and in Hollywood, and and if it if it owns all those outlets, uh, then it assumes that these outlets, um, if they themselves are actually victims of their own. Uh, uh, algorithms on Facebook, then they get only their own information on their Facebook and Twitter feeds or whatever, and then uh, and then they really do feel like they are the only voice out there. Right. And uh, a lot of times, I hear people on the left complaining that the people on the right are living in an echo chamber and uh, only listen to the people that they believe in and, ex- and are interested in. And I'm sure there's some truth in that too. But uh, it seems to me that the majority of the uh, media in the world today uh, is, is leans to the left, and uh, so it would be. It's not surprising that they would be surprised. I think <laughs> it's right. not surprising that they would be surprised when Brexit goes the way it does, or when uh, when uh, somebody like Donald Trump gets elected. They thought, well, this is a shoe in. This is this is. They convinced me of that. Like you said, you didn't believe. You didn't know believe no. that he was going to be elected. Well, it, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon that going back to your Atlantic article for a minute and talking about this Facebook phenomenon and the algorithms that make things uh, so streamlined in a sense, you, you might I think that to begin with, they're thinking, you know, we're doing you a favor. We're helping you out. Right. Mm-hmm. But underneath all of that is this idea that that uh, each individual person's preferences and tastes are going to be 
sacrosanct, you know. Right. There's there's something really American about the Facebook algorithm because there's something very individualistic about it. You know, yes. Uh, American culture is uh, full of individualistic thinking and ideas, all right? It's part of a hallmark of America, the rugged individualism. That's right. Sort of Ever since the Conestoga wagon going west and and uh, the, the, the revolution itself, maybe right. you could even argue that the Americans have been thought of themselves as individualistic. And there's a certain... There's a certain good in that, in that, you know, the the country uh, is established, politically speaking, to try and make the most freedom for the for for the individual to choose where he'd like to go. And on a on a on a practical Christian uh, level, I I approve of that because sure. I think we are, we Christians understand that faith uh, is got has got to be a, a choice. It's got to be something that you choose to do. You can't be coerced into becoming a Christian. In other words, right? Um, for the, for the government to want to limit itself for the purposes of allowing the most freedom for the individual is actually a very good thing because sure. then it makes it possible for people to truly make choices uh, honestly. But we've also kind of um, deified that individualistic choice, don't you think? Yeah, we have. There's In the academic circles, I walk in, I know there is a, which is limited. It's not like I walk in all of them. But if mine is sort of a... Uh, a, a, a litmus test for the thing. Uh, it seems that there's a concern with the hyper-individualism, uh, if we could put it that way, sort of like individualism gone awry. Sure. Where it's gone from just a emphasis on the dignity of the individual to a kind of atomization and fragmentation where I am the final arbiter of all things and it's just me and there are no other forces that matter or count in my uh, right. in my choices or my existence and there's some pushback on that i i part of me feels that one of the the reason why marxism remains popular and even today remains popular is because in one way shape or form it's not very individualistic and i know mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. would be a pejor maybe like a pejorative against it or a slam against it in the past but when you have things like you know, your news feeds are so individualistically structured that they effectively make bubbles that isolate you from any other counter viewpoint. And the result, it's not just Facebook news feeds, there are other cultural forces at work, but right. all those things together result in our highly tribalistic political discourse. You sometimes think, well, maybe a more collectivist view of things would be better. Like mm -hmm. it would be better. Like mm -hmm. I can see why that would be approved, like that would seem. Uh, uh, attractive sure. people. I think people long for community, don't they? Yes. They, we we want to have some kind of sense of belonging to something. And I mean, we hear about uh, uh, young people in the inner city who are uh, uh, so longing for a family that they join gangs right. in order to be a sort of a part of something bigger than themselves. People want that. There's a kind of desire in all of us, I think, to be uh, to have a kind of unity. Uh, we might do it by starting clubs like, uh, you know, stamp collecting clubs or uh, groups that love to go to football games or uh, some, you know, some hobby like that. Right. Or you could think of a larger scale. You can be a political party, maybe, or you could be a, 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 na a nation even. You could even say our nation against that nation. You know, we're, we're us and they're them and we belong to this nation and, and uh, there are some pros and cons there. And, uh, and, but ultimately, I think we have to have something that unifies us in order to be able to manage to have some community. Um, I was reading an article in Salon.com the other day 
uh, about uh, written by a woman who uh, uh, had uh, was complaining really that uh, her family was being decimated uh, as a result of this sort of individualism. She and her husband got married. They lived in New York and they had family around them. And then he got a job in San Francisco and they all packed everything up and moved out there. And were 2,900 miles away from anybody that they were, you know, related to or the community that they had had. And then she had a child. And when she had her child, she said, I thought I knew what loneliness was until I had my child. And then it was just me taking care of the baby and I had nobody uh, to talk to. Right. And uh, I was living in a town where I had no family and I longed really for my, for my family. So there's a kind of unity to be found in family that we have, I don't know, lost because of this atomization of hyper-individualism. We think an individual is only interested in uh, fulfilling himself, and the way to fulfill yourself is to go and follow your own dreams, like every Disney princess has told us, as right. you say. Uh, you follow your heart, you know, and, and go where you can uh, can fulfill yourself. But but. We, we don't realize that part of fulfillment comes from uh, being engaged with something larger than yourself, a desire for unity and community and and uh, family and uh, and ultimately maybe even a spiritual community. So my question really is, what since everybody needs unity and we need diversity too, we, we, we don't want to all be exactly cookie cutter the same. Right. That would make for a dull life. But at the same time, we also need the, this unity what what would a healthy unity look like and then what would a healthy diversity look like in our world right i it is the question the simple answer would be well it would look like community because that's basically what a community is it's somehow a diversity that's unified but that doesn't i mean it's like well what does that look like or what does that right, mean community right. is such a bizarre strange slippery thing you know mm. it's like it's hard really to understand or define it or even how do you make it family is an example of this it's family is a kind of community and in a way it makes sense in another way it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that somehow we all love each other and unite each other because we have the same genetics right like is that really mm. is that it or is it what else what is there that's actually holding them together and in a weird and as people who leave home and don't go back like not like the lady in the salon article but people like oh, i'm gonna leave home and never come back the family's connection can be tenuous it feels like like it feels like there's something there that you can't quite put your finger on that's holding it together. And it's more than genetics because, you know, your blood connection is not going to stop you from leaving or it's not going to stop like a fight from right. breaking out and dividing Some the family. Some of the biggest fights in the world are between brothers, right? Right. So, sure, that doesn't stop you from fighting or stop you from leaving. But there is something bigger than yourself that you're born into, aren't you? With, yeah. with a family, you have a kind of built-in... Um, uh, unity, be, uh, even if you don't get along with your family members very well, because of the fact that you have you didn't choose your own family. You can't choose your parents. Right. That, you? that was Chesterton's idea. He said that your family literally is like crouching in the bushes, waiting to surprise you when you're born. Like you, you just, they just <laughs> right. when you're born, it's just like boom, there they are, there they are, and you had no choice in them. That was actually one of Chesterton's arguments for why people who run away from the family aren't actually. They want to say that they're trying to explore the world and become more diversified, become a person of the world. You know, they're being more adventurous. And Chesterton's response was, no, actually, I would say you're being more cowardly. 
because yeah, the enough. adventure is actually you are escaping your family because your family is something you can't control you yeah. can't shape it's, yeah. it was given to you you're trying to escape that to go somewhere where you can control and shape your exactly. environment exactly i think that's wendell berry's argument too in some of his essays about how uh, there's a difference between the state and the community he says the the state the smallest entity in the state is the citizen the individual citizen the smallest entity in the community is the family right and sometimes they can get along very well. The state deals with uh, large-scale uh, uh, effects on individual rights and so on. Uh, but the family, or the uh, community rather, uh, realizes that a community survives on, its, uh, on the health of its families. Right. So it does everything it can to protect the family. So you might get conflict between the state and the, and the community when it comes to, say, defining marriage. Uh, the, um, the, the state might be saying, uh, we want the individual to be as complete and whole and, 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 uh, happy as he can be. And so, uh, we don't want anybody to, uh, suffer dif- with any difficulty about getting married. So we'll make it easy for them to get married if that's what they really want to do. The individual wants to do. Uh, but then if it's a, a, a miserable marriage, they're unhappy in their marriage, then people ought to be able to uh, to separate easily. So they have they would come up with no-fault divorce laws. So and the so kind on. of streamlining, customizing thing. Right, in order to satisfy the individual's needs, right? And you might imagine, too, then, that the definition of marriage might come into question and say, well, what if two men or two women want to get married? Well, if the individual is the most important thing, then by all means, let's make the laws easy for them to be able to marry who they like. Whereas on the community side, the community uh, my, it says that our, our health it depends on the health of the family, then we want to make it actually kind of difficult to get a divorce, for example. We, once you've committed to your family, we want you to try and work it out. You know? right. we, so we might want to be the opposite of the, of the state in terms of, the, of, the, of divorce laws. We might also want to be opposite them in, in terms of socially, social pressures on how to get married so that you take a long time to get to think about who you're going to marry. You might want to encourage uh, everybody to uh, talk to their, their parents and their, and their siblings and their friends about whether this is the right match and go to counseling with a pastor or something and, and, and get more information about what, uh, what, how, whether you're compatible or not before you make that because what you're doing is protecting the family, right. trying to keep it whole. So, and they might be much less interested since since the community is interested in healthy families that have children, biological children. They might be more interested in in eliminating the possibility for, say, uh, homosexual marriage because that wouldn't be uh, conducive specifically to having biological children. Uh, and, and you can see how the two of them would come into conflict right. then. One in, one's, uh, supporting the individual, the other supporting the family. I can also see how they could come into conflict because all this community mm-hmm. stuff, it's the way you describe it sounds like it's another kind of mediatory thing. It you is. Know, it's, a, it's a mediator of things. It's like there's the individual, there's the state, and then there's the community that sort of mediates things. You know, well, the state says you have these rights, okay, but you're – a part of a community and how there are responsibilities that go along with these rights because you're not just completely alone by yourself. And part of one of the dangers of individualism, you could say, that gets manifested in, say, like a news feed that could silence all the opposition is that we don't want, like we said several podcasts ago, we want immediacy. 
Right. Right. We want it now. We want it. We want or we want things simplified and streamlined. You know, why can't we just say marriage is just between two consenting individuals and it can be dissolved by the same two consenting individuals? That seems to just simplify, it streamline. Solves it all. It's, it solves the whole problem. And yet sure. the, the community or communal values step in and kind of serve as sort of this buffer between these the between the person and the state and and says and it kind of sort of filters it through and says well hang on here's some other things to do here's some other balancing acts you have to do part of the reason that that's attractive is because we have swallowed this idea that the individual is ultimately the most important thing and and so the satisfaction of an individual within his lifetime is more important than the idea of an ongoing community that is larger than the individual in which an individual is a, a sort of link in a genetic chain from grandparents to parents to child to grandchild to great grandchild, you know, you're a part of a of a, a multi generational community. Uh, if you if you value your own personal interests and your own personal satisfactions above the nature of the community, above the needs of the community. Uh, then it's understandable why it is that those two things would come into conflict. But it, what what the effect of that in, that ra- rampant individualism is is to eliminate that buffer between right. the between the the marketplace and the and the government between the the way we make our living and eat and the way we rule ourselves or our rights and the government right. You know, like if the rights. if the government is interested in the in the health of the community, then the government then. Uh, would make laws that would encourage and be uh, supportive of the health of the community. And I think sometimes that's the best way to approach uh, a debate about, say, homosexual marriage. Uh, I just keep picking that one up because it's uh, so it's so key today these so days. Prescient. Yeah, people are talking about it all the time. Um, but on, a, on an issue like that, you would think that the, the, the best way to, would be to argue from the individual but but it might be that we need to convince the government that even uh, the ongoing uh, health of the society in general depends on a certain health of the family mm-hmm. and uh, how the children are raised and whether they have a father and a mother and whether those father that father and mother are generally biological parents, uh, with the uh, understandable exceptions of a few. But most of the time, the best thing is for the biological parents to uh, to care for the child. Uh, if that's the case, then uh, maybe the government then starts making uh, laws based on that notion and wants to help support the community. But if the pressure on the government is to uh, support the idea of the individual uh, at the at the expense of the community, then what ends up happening is uh, uh, the two come into direct conflict, and the and the law then actually. Uh, atomizes the community. The law, well, the combination of the law and this behind it, this idea of individualism trumping everything else. Well, what you said, pardon the pun. What you said, uh, <laughs> what you what you said is actually stating the problem uh, itself. We said that you know, post truth was this big word, big idea last year, and we're like, well, where have these guys been for the last thirty or forty years? Right. What we mean by that is, for the last thirty or forty years in the culture narrative is in service of, at least it was in service of communities because there's every community has a narrative that gives them coherence. Mm-hmm. But something changed in academia and culture where narratives now need to service the individual with their own personal narratives that satisfy them emotionally. And the fact of the community or the facts that the community 
seems to hold the narrative, the facts that their narrative give need to fall before the individual. You can, uh-huh. you can look at a lot of the things that we would see as like a progressivist revolutionary tactics from the 60s forward is really quite American at the bottom of it. It's like I am an individual. I have rights and things that take away my rights could be the government. Right. But it seems also that a community could also take away my rights. That's right. Right. That's and if right. that's the case as an American, that's not correct. That's not that's not how it's supposed to be. So there ought to be some kind of laws, some sort of something that basically tells the community that they don't have any say over me. You know, there ought to be and techno and it's not just laws, but even like everything from the state to the marketplace, you mentioned those two things, ought to be in service of empowering the individual, whether it's the state uh, keep maintaining your rights, not just in the face of the state, but also of your community mm-hmm. or the marketplace providing technologies and opportunities that allow for you to move far away or for you to have a news feed that gives what you want, not what your parents have always thought or something like right, that. Right, right. And so there is there is something very – it's there is something, oddly enough, very American about even the progressivist drive to a lot of the things well, sure. on homosexual marriage or LGBT rights or whatever it is. There is something very American about it because there's something very individualistic about it. That's right. And, That's right. I think when you have people that have individual desires, the, the 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 American way, in a sense, is to want to see those individual desires have every opportunity to bear fruit, uh, to grow, to whatever and, the and metaphor one of, is. And one of the problems is that community is a cohering mediary force. And as I said earlier, it's it's like community is the solution to the dichotomy between unity and diversity. Like, how do we make those things work? Right. Well, it's community. Right. But community is something that's very slippery and hard to define. But we know what it is when we see It's one of those things where we know what it is when we see it, even though we may struggle to articulate how it works or why it does what it does. And we also recognize the consequences of it being gone. All right. Like the the lady in the salon uh, article saying how she suddenly recognized now that I mean, her moving to the complete other side of the country to pursue whatever, to have her own family and stuff like that's very individualistic, very American. But once she did it, she recognized the loneliness. Like she, she suddenly felt the isolation. And in that moment, she suddenly recognized why a kind of community is good and I is, is a good thing. It's like it's almost in the it's almost sad. It's like you don't recognize how good it is until it's gone or until it's not there to like give you some sort of structure and meaning. Right. And you see this in popular culture going back even as far as like um, even as far as the nineties. Something you could see like in sitcoms. Okay, sitcoms are sort of a standard element of pop culture. Sure. Somewhere in the you know for the longest time sitcoms typically centered around a family in some way, mm-hmm. all right? It was mm-hmm. like, even if it was being kind of, you know, uh, revolutionary with it, like all in the family or something like that with Archie right. Bunker and then like that. It's still about a family. Uh, the Cosby Show is about a family, you know, so right. on and so forth. Family Matters was sure. about a family. Sure. So on and so time. forth. To, you know, all, yeah, all that time, you know, uh, Home Improvement was Home about improvement. a family. I'll leave it to be for leave it to be <laughs> right. That's right. Stuff like that. You could argue it was all about some kind of family, and that was the center of it and their kind of doings. When you get into the '90s, something happens where you lose family, 
Mm-hmm. But you have to maintain, but there's still some kind of community has to work. Mm-hmm. You know, so you still have shows like you know Everybody Loves Raymond in the '90s, which are into the 2000s, which is about a family. It's about the right. Malones. Right. But you also have things like Frasier, which he has his dad and his brother, but also like his coworkers and mm-hmm. his like uh, how, like house cleaner, you know Daphne and stuff like that. It's not a typical family. It's not right. unusual. Right. Friends is probably the big example of exactly. like how the family is actually your collection of friends, which they're in the light of this individualistic thing, there has never been a more individualistic community than a community of friends because friends are something you can pick and That's something right. you can kind of drop even easier than a family or pick easier than a family. Right. And you go forward and you look at like things today, there are still probably sitcoms that deal with family, but there's also things like, you know, the Big Bang Theory is about friends who are like their own family. You know, they're far away from their mothers, their fathers, maybe their mothers and fathers are all dead or something like that. And it's just them. Or yeah. New Girl is like everybody's moved away from each other into Los Angeles and their friends are kind of their family. That's right. That's right. The attractiveness of these of these family-oriented things is that they are a family. They're a substitute for a family. I even remember back in the 70s uh, of, uh, what is it, the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the first that, that accepted uh, div- uh, divorce as a part and parcel of life. And here are these two divorced uh, people. Uh, may- well, no, maybe that, uh, they say it. Maybe they both lost their spouses to death. I don't even remember now. But at any rate, one single mom now who had three daughters, one single dad who has three boys, and they get married and combine their family together. Right. So uh, it's it's a, an attempt at holding on to the idea of family, uh, even when families are uh, vaporizing before our very eyes. Friends, as you said, uh, is, a, is a perfect example of an, a, a, a committed group like a family that really doesn't share much in the way of blood relation. I think one of the two of them were brother and sister, but the rest of them were all just friends. And uh, but they were very loyal to each other. They were. They? they were very connected to each other and lo- loyal to each other through thick and thin. They recognized each other's foibles, and yet they still loved each other in spite of them. And uh, right. that's the sort of thing you you get. And the the unity of a family. You have to be uh, accepted in your family, be, even though they all know that you have this problem or that problem, and you can be yourself and still be loved. Right. Some. Some. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like there's a sense of acceptance. Yeah. Maybe even a sense of empowerment that they believe in you, but there's also a sense of like challenge. Like they'll, you know, they'll check yeah. you. And yeah, keep... that's right. And the question is, in that matrix, uh, there is a weird ground for unity because we're all together, and yet diversity can flower out of that because everybody can be themselves, and yet everybody wants you to be your best self. Right. So it's like there will still be challenge, and they're not going to tolerate everything, or if they did, they're lousy friends or something like that. And so it's a weird... Community is... Community is like cheese. All right? Uh, Chesterton wrote an essay called Cheese, all right? Which was a marvelous essay. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. But his underlying idea in there is that cheese is a weird thing because on the one it's universal without being uniform yes all right and in that they said there's cheese just all over the world but it's not the same cheese if you go to england you know you're going to get english cheese and if you go to a specific place in england you're going to get that specific that's right cheese but if you or 
Yeah, or something. But if you go to France, Wensleydale. You, you, but at France, you're going to get its own cheese, and in That's German, in certain areas, of cheese. If you go true. over, he said, if I went to India, you know, and I got cheese there, I would expect it to be some sort of local cheese, sure. you know, something. Sure. It's like cheese is this weird property of being something that is universal. It's still cheese, and yet it's capable of adapting to a culture and adapting to a local culture without suddenly ceasing to be itself. Sure, that makes sense. And a community seems to be something like that. There's communities all over the globe and they seem to act the same way. It's some sort of closely knit, intimate network of people of whom your life is entangled with in some way and yet it's not all uniform. Not every community looks the same. Not all the people in the community necessarily look the same. Just like in a family, you know, there's differences and stuff like that. But there's some kind of internal cohesion that still allows for adaption. That makes sense. Sure. That's what I meant by family is like cheese. Cheese is something that, that has an internal cohesion. No matter where you go, it's still cheese. I mean, we all know what it is. And yet somehow that internal cohesion can still adapt to and become you know different kinds of cheese. Sure. Well, and, and you, you might even apply that to the nation, uh, to, to the United States. Right. Uh, we have this idea that we are a group of of immigrants from many, many different countries, uh, all uh, coming together to be under the same constitution and, and so on, have a have a unity in a sense in the principles of the founding of the country, uh, and yet we can be as diverse as we like within those principles so that we enjoy each other's foods, we can enjoy each other's racial differences, economic differences even, um, we can enjoy each other's g- gender differences and so on. Religious differences. Uh, re- even, even plurality of religious differences to a degree. And, and my question really is, um, how diverse can you be in a, in a country like this before you uh, lose the unity? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as long as everybody's interested in, in uh, the, the, the principles that the, the country was founded on and want to be living under those principles, right. believe in them in a sense, uh, then that's uh, then that unity can sustain a, an immense amounts of diverse amount amount of diversity, right. and that's a good thing. But I think if you start doubting the unity and and claiming that that's a good thing because it's uh, we want diversity, right. then eventually we will become tribal. I think, right. uh, and that 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 can be very dangerous. Uh, and eventually that d- devolves into I think complete individuality. Uh, where where you have no sense of, of belonging to anything above yourself, and while for a while that may sound very good, the, 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 I think Wendell Berry talks about how uh, somebody growing up in the country, uh, in a small town in the country, might uh, when he gets to be uh, an adult, might want to go to the big city, uh, and that's the attraction is partly that in the big city I can be anonymous. Mm-hmm. I can be my I can be who I want to be and I won't have to meet my you know my aunt Flo in the grocery store and be overseen by all of my cousins you know around town and everybody knows my business and everybody knows what I'm doing and they can all stick their noses in sort of you know right. almost arbitrarily uh see my pastor in the in the the, the grocery store or something um 
I, I can be anonymous. I can go to the big city and I don't even have to know my neighbor next door. The only thing that uh, my neighbor might require of me is that I keep my stereo down. Right. But they're not going to say, did you go to church this week? Or, uh, you know, are you how you doing with your you know studies or how are you doing with your girlfriend? Right. There's you... a nice boy down the street. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. Like so the individuality is actually attractive uh, on that level. And I think that's that's what brings people to uh, to yeah. want to move to the big city sometimes. But then they find out that they really are very lonely mm-hmm. because they don't have that community built around them. Well, that's the thing. This is the conundrum of our contemporary, effectively postmodern society. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything you just said about you know living somewhere where your aunt Flo could run into you, your pastor and all that jazz, to a, a typical postmodern, post-structural thinking person, whether they understand that intellectually or just sort of instinctively because they live in the culture to them that type of world is completely evil all right uh-huh. because it is a surveillance society is what they would right. call it a surveillance society is the most oppressive society of course for them all societies are in some ways surveillance societies but a society that puts you under surveillance and surveillance is not necessarily just you know having cameras on every street corner or a cop on every street corner or something like that Rather, uh, surveillance is much deeper and much more insidious. It's the idea of you're being watched even when you don't know if anybody's watching. Huh. You know, that's, and that's part of like what living in a community does, as you don't know. Is your ant flow going to just show up at the last second or something like that? Is, right. is, is your pastor going to be around the corner? And thus it regulates your behavior because you don't know who's watching. And that sense of surveillance the, you know, kind of what Foucault would call the panoptic kind of view of things is all seeing eye that you yeah. you can't really see it, but it sees you and you kind of know it's there regulating your behavior until it becomes internalized. That's considered the height of oppression and evil. And that's the thing to like break free from. However, and I said this is the conundrum of the situation. Once they break free from the surveillance society, from that sense of surveillance that community brings, they still want community. They still want some kind of cohesive unit they belong to. It's the belonging part that they're missing, right. isn't it? And the irony is that now our big cities like London and New York are covered with cameras. Yeah. So that now it's the government that is actually surveying everybody all the time. Right. And uh, whereas you could have had a, a community of people that actually cared about your welfare. Right. Now you've got a, a sort of big brother situation, like from 1984, where you're you're being watched all the time anyway. And that's so. the danger. If we could, if we could just flip it to the other side for a second. The, mm-hmm. That's the danger of like collectivism, because ah. individualism, you know. It's giving dignity to the individual, but it can go awry by positing the individual against the community. Right. Collectivism recognizes the need for community. Like we need that kind of cohesion and that kind of mediation with each other. But they try to establish it artificially. Right. Rather than a and that's what that's what I mean. It's like it's almost like the same problem. It's like they want mediacy, but they want it immediately. So rather than doing the difficult and even mysterious work involved in like families and communities and just kind of grow organically together, we're going to enshrine it in law. You know, your profits have to be redistributed to everybody else. If you're not going to be charitable to your neighbor and your neighbor, as we dictate by law, is everybody in the nation, whether you know them or not, uh, we're going to make you do it. You know, and we're going to uh, we're going to make everybody kind of 
live together in communal property, you know, or something like that. We're just sure. going, that's what that's what collectivism does is it creates an artificial community, and you can't do that either. All right, it just it doesn't work. It falls apart. People. That's like almost like the in, in, in an odd irony. The individualistic instinct kicks in, and people buck against it and become even more isolated unto themselves in a high sort of collectivist environment. They just because they're forced together by law doesn't mean they actually care about each other, or they're actually going to mediate anything with each other. Why? Because the law is there. Let them do it. It actually makes them even more isolated from each other. So collectivism is kind of a artificial community, and is one of the reasons why it doesn't work because community is a mysterious thing like how it works it's not artificial you can't force it Mm -hmm. and yet it can break apart seemingly so easily and yet when it breaks apart the consequences become very apparent the need for the need for community is overshadowed by this desire for individuals to be able to express themselves the way they want to but i think that leads us to this idea that that the community is of really no value that it's just oppressive. That it's like you were saying about uh, about the complaint. Uh, it's it's oppressive, and uh, and anything anything that it does to limit you is somehow a way of um, limiting your individual freedoms. And so, what we've really done is, I think, substitute the word autonomy for the word liberty. We've 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 redefined the idea of liberty to what the definition really is of autonomy. Autonomy means you're able to do anything you want to. Whatever you want to do, short of injuring someone else, is acceptable. Uh, uh, autonomy, you know, self-law, right. law, to, law of the self. Uh, but liberty really is about being able to be free to do the right thing. And so liberty requires that you have a kind of overarching unity in at least the concept of what the good is you see and i think if we've if we have um um deified the individual autonomy then what we end up with is uh the loss of the good and so we've we lose our our overarching um cultural fabric the fabric that we all relate to in order to know what's good and what's not we've replaced the good with this idea of individual liberty community is the mediator of the good in some way. That's right. Like I was thinking back when we mentioned in the Atlantic article that, you know, Newsweek, I'm sorry, news feeds, um, can be highly, they can, they can be highly customized. Right. Right. But they don't have, they, well, they can be, but they don't have to be echo chambers. Right. I mean, you and I consider ourselves traditional conservative, traditionalist conservatives. Yeah. Right. Sure. And yet you read Salon. And yeah. I mentioned the Atlantic, you know, and we read Washington Post just as much as we would read like National Review and they pop up on our thing. And so our customized news feeds ostensibly are, we hope, not echo chambers. We have, I mean, we don't shut out. We we, we listen to like the uh, the friends, the Facebook friends we have that have different views of ours and they can pop up and we can comment on those things and or we can look at what they share, the article they share, and then share it, but have your own thoughts on it and stuff like that. Sure. And so it's like, well, just because you have a newsfeed that's customized doesn't mean it has to turn to an echo chamber. But the reason it doesn't turn to an echo chamber is not because of law, like some sort of law that's enshrined somewhere. It's because we had a community that somehow shaped us to say, you need to hear the other side, whether it was your family or for me, it was a combination of family uh, that demanded that I, you know, I 
think through things and actually get the whole facts on things and a college community where right. I was just my educate education is a kind of community too. absolutely education that taught me to you have to listen to the other side just like last time we talked about disagreement you got to chew it over before you can say you can spit it out those things were there and those things were able to mediate myself to everybody else so that when I come to other people's opinions, I don't have to shut them out. I actually say, no, it's good for me to listen to them. Right. It's good right. for me to try and engage with them and try to engage. With them. It's good for me not to be an echo chamber. But that didn't come about through law. And it's, no, and interesting. It's, that didn't have anything to do with law. And it also didn't even necessarily come about because of my own individual autonomy that just sort of arrived at it magically. It was medi- It was a. It was a good that was mediated to me through a community. Right. Exactly. Right. And we have all sorts of things that are mediated to us. Uh, in that fabric by way of community, by way of our parents, by way of our, our academic communities and our friendships and so on that, uh, that teach us from a young age how to, how to handle weapons. Uh, we talked sure. about guns last week. We right. had how to, uh, how to cook, how to, how to handle food, how to address, uh, uh, you know, your, your physical health, um, how to manage money, how to handle money, how to, uh, how to how to pick friends well? Sure. Uh, or pick a or pick a spouse well. Pick a spouse well. Exactly right. All these things are mediated to us through uh, a kind of uh, a, a community, and uh, that that community, of course, for the Christian uh, includes the church. The church. Sure. Uh, at the highest at the highest level, so that uh, what God is actually uh, uh, giving to us through the mediation of word of the word and the interpretation of that word within the body of the community of, 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 of the church, uh, lends, lends a, an understanding of, uh, of what's good in all these different categories, you know, of yeah. life. Uh, and we bring that to bear on how we live and then we don't need law as much. I think the point that, uh, we made several, several sessions back was that, uh, uh, laws actually don't, um, can't actually stop you from being a a bad person. No. Laws really are just a a reminder of what the good is supposed to look like. Right. And you can still choose to follow it or not. Now there are consequences obviously. Sure. But the but the consequences often are not enough to stop somebody from doing the wrong thing if their heart really longs to do that thing. Right. And again, you you you're reminding me once again of how frustrating it is because the stuff I read and the stuff that animates a lot of thinking and a lot of cultural stuff these days is antithetical to this entire enterprise. The idea of a of cultural institutions, because that's yeah. what you're talking about, is schools, family, the arts, and religion. Those are like the four big sort of cultural institutions mm-hmm. are supposed to be mediators of something that's good so that the state doesn't have to be this overarching thing that just dominates our lives, but also so the individual doesn't just go off into loneliness and isolation and into foolishness, possibly. Right. So this idea of like a community culture, a cultural community, a civic community culture or something like that, built on cultural institutions, is supposed to be part and parcel of what makes a society work, what makes a nation work. And it is those things that are so readily these days assaulted right? Right. in some ways. The arts uh, have to be a purely individualistic individualistic expression. And if they say anything more deeply meaningful, it's to be purely political to subvert everything else, to subvert the family, to subvert religion, to subvert the government, to subvert 
uh, a political party. You don't want to have families need to be streamlined and simplified to where anybody can marry anybody else and then dissolve the marriage for any reason. All right. Right, right. And kids should, you know, be free to leave the family and abandon their parents or something like that to go forge their own path and they don't have any ties to them. You know, if they want to have an abortion, they don't have to tell their parent or something right. like that. The religion needs to stop being so public, you know, and get more private because, you know, that's another cultural thing that sort of like inhibits you. And it's like it keeps it fills people with guilt and shame. And we ought to let the it fills the individual with guilt and shame. So we need to push that back. Education needs to be about, you know, an individualistic empowering of what do you want to do? Even the old idea of like, go get a job was like, you know, get the job you want to get in order to make money so you can live autonomously. So because you have money, but even today it's still like, follow your dream, follow the thing you want to do. Or become educated enough to be a social activist so you can subvert all the cultural things and so on and so forth. All of these things, I'm sorry, just the frustration is like multi-layered. Yeah. Because it's like all of these things that are necessary to create coherence, to actually ward off tyranny because the state doesn't have to put a bunch of laws. The community can be the buffer and the mediator of the good in a much more intimate way than the the state can be. All these things are supposed to put together are two things. One, A, get directly assaulted by most of our culture. Right. Directly assaulted by it. And yet they still want it, but they think they can get it by assaulting it and then sharing it down. But they directly assault it. So A, they directly assault it. But B, it is not a groundless statement to say that the cultural institutions we make can and have gone awry. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. the arts get dead or that the family, you know, there's some bad marriages out Absolutely there. You right. know, that religion becomes... Abusive parents and, yeah, abusive abus- religion. Abusive and, religion certainly. used to justify racism or sexism certainly. or something or abuse of, like, the LGBT community or something like that. That's it's right. like you can't avoid... It's like this... Here's, again, the conundrum. Why community is so difficult. You can't avoid the fact that it has been abused. But right. debunking it doesn't seem to be a solution. It does, doesn't seem to be a solution. And that's right. sort of the problem right. we're stuck in. There's a need for community and yet the reality from a Christian perspective of our fallenness that constantly corrupts a community if we're not – it constantly corrupts it. At some point it fails and falls apart. Right. Yeah, the community that uh, that infringes upon your, any of your desires becomes oppressive and as, as anything that's oppressive is inherently uh, bad – then, then maybe the communities just have to be undermined and and, and atomized. Mm. Uh, well, that's that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater in some ways. I, I we've got a, a need for unity, and yet we can't find a way to have it because we've we've destroyed the very uh, the fabric that uh, would not only mediate what it looks like to us, but also uh, be to be enjoyed. It's the it's the thing that we would enjoy then. Uh, we've destroyed. And we destroyed that fabric precisely because that fabric has been abused in the past. Right. If you can find any abuse, then 96% unabuse, non-abuse, is not any argument in favor of keeping it because of that 4% that is so uh, abusive that we... uh, Well, we have to get rid of it all. Obviously, as long as something is less than perfect, it has to go. Right. Well... Then it becomes ideological because for the we let me see I can say this we we 
are unrelenting and critical of anything that we don't like that has the slightest amount of flaw to it. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the same time, we, um, we are willing to look the other way about almost any flaw as long as we want to keep the thing. Sure. So it becomes a kind of political or ideological fight all the time to decide whether to keep or, or reject something. This is this is what happens in a world that dismisses the notion of an overarching fabric or an overarching uh, meta narrative of uh, of truth that we can refer things to. Is my political party in keeping with what I know to be good, right, just, and fair? Right. You see, but if I dismiss what is good, right, just, and fair, then it's my political party, right or wrong. Right, and when you dissolve. The communal factors. It really becomes easy to not have that reference point anymore, right? Them, because they're the media. They are a main mediator of that objective fabric more than the state or yourself. That's right. Once that falls apart, it is much easier to fall into well, my party right or wrong, because I'm looking for unity and I can't afford to have that unity dismissed or disrupted. Uh, because that's what I'm holding on to. That's the only place I've got unity. I'd better stick to it. You might, you can see why white supremacy becomes a popular thing with some very small portion of the population, but still significant yes. part where I'm going to have to find my unity in my race. You see, mm. you could imagine the Black Lives Matter kind of approach the same way. It might be I'm unifying behind the uh, my race because they've been abused. Uh, I, I, I'm, you find people that are this way about their families. There have been dynastic sort of families in the world, like the Kennedys or some of the, sure. where they're, they're, they circle the wagons and defend each other to the death, even if uh, what they've been doing hasn't been exactly right and good and just, because the family for them is everything. So you can, you, in a sense, you can make an idol out of any of these unifiers, anything that would make it possible for you to feel the unity. If you turn that into the highest good, the summum bonum, then... Uh, uh, you overlook the the atrocities, and in anyone who threatens that, you don't overlook any atrocities. You know, right. you can't afford to. I'm going to condemn your group not because uh, it has a lot of uh, wrong in it, but because it has any wrong in it. Um, right. The, you hear this argument for about the, the the court system because the death penalty, for example, because the death penalty uh, has had 96 percent. 96% of the convictions have actually been right and just and good, but 4% of those convictions for the death penalty have actually been innocent men, you know, innocent people. Uh, and uh, uh, some of those, of course, then get found out about and they get released before they're executed. But some of even that small part of that 4% actually get wrongly executed. And so we have to dismiss the whole idea of the death penalty, for example. Well, no matter where you stand on that as an idea, that isn't a good reason for it. Right. To dismiss it because there's four percent wrong when in uh, in uh, in the college in your college uh, grading process a ninety six is an A no matter who's grading you right that's a pretty sure. darn good if you assume that the the whatever system you're looking at is going to be a system that uh, is flawed because it's got human beings in it then uh, to find a four percent flaw ratio there is not unusual at all. Now that doesn't. There's not an excuse to to stop trying to make it a hundred percent. Right. You want to fix whatever's wrong with it. Don't get me wrong. But the idea is that for some people, that if there's any flaw at all, the entire thing has to be thrown out. Whereas on the other hand, 
Harvey Weinstein, for example. Right. You know, he can be abusing people for 30 years and everybody just looks the other way because he's one of ours. He's one of our guys. He's in right. with Hollywood elite or he's a powerful fellow or he's giving money to certain big, big wigs in politics or whatever. Yeah. It's where community goes wrong almost seems to be when community makes itself its own coherence. Right. right. Rather than unifying around some notion of what's true or what's beautiful or what's good, they unify around just themselves. Like it's it's us, the, us at all costs. That's right. You know, it doesn't matter if one of us is – they almost feel like this is how like, you know, the mafia or mob or even a gang works. You know, the, the center of it, the good, the true and the beautiful for us is us. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter what one member of our community, no matter what horrible atrocities they do, as long as they're – keep doing it for us or as long as their presence is still valuable to us, we will shield them at all possibility. If a community like say Hollywood, mm -hmm. which the actoral community there could be seen as a kind of community. Uh, if that community had at its center, a real sense of the true and the good and the beautiful, some, some sense, whatever it could, it could be God, it could be platonic idealism, whatever, but they have some sense of it. Right. It's possible that as soon as Harvey started doing this stuff, there would have been some sort of not a law, there was obviously law against like his sexual misconduct, but before that even kicked in or was even a factor, there would have been communal factors that would have looked at him askance and said, what are you doing? Yeah, cut that out. And would have That's like right. stepped in and said, if you don't cut this out, we're going to cut you out or we're going to shun you or whatever, you know, all that type of stuff. We're going to, you know, you're going to, we're going to kind of not shake your hand when you come to parties or something like that and let you know we're displeased with this. Right. Those factors could have been there to buffer, to mediate, to solve the problem before it even turned into a big problem. But if the community is centered around itself, that all that matters is our coherence. And even in that realm, like an individualistic thing comes in, well, I really, really, I want to make sure my career is okay, so I'm not going to challenge this powerful person. And that's what happens, thing. isn't it? Sure. Right. right. Both those things come into play. When you lose that kind of central thing that's outside of yourself, like that's the key, out of yourself and even of your own community, well, you lose the ability to critique yourself or right. your community, don't you? Right. You can't do it if you don't allow any kind of higher value than the survival of the self or the survival of that that's that community. Then uh, you've got no way to do self correction. Right. I think that's another reason why, like traditionalism, as I say, mm -hmm. tradition's fine and wonderful, but traditionalism is built on the same thing, right. right? Because traditionalism is we're doing this because that's the way we've always done it. Right. And it's sort of an extension of the we above and over even the thing the tradition is, was supposed to be trying to carry on, which was like the true and the good and the beautiful. And it's like, well, no, what matters is this is what we have done. And I feel like when communities get centered on themselves and not something outside themselves, that is even a judge and critique of themselves, that they then too can become abusive or corrupt or something goes wrong. They'll protect their Harvey Weinstein members. They'll, they'll protect their Donald Trumps. Absolutely. They'll protect their yeah. academic fellows who, you know, were maybe terrorists back in the 60s, but yes. now for some yes. reason, whatever, we'll, we will protect them. You know why? Because what matters is us rather than something higher than us. That's right. That's right. And in some cases on the progressive side, it's the revolution that they're interested in fomenting that is actually the thing that they need to preserve, mm -hmm. even at the cost of their own lives. So even that kind of um, having a larger, larger idea to be a part of something bigger than yourself can also, if it's the wrong thing, can also lead to corruption and, and degradation and, uh, and the destruction of human right. beings. That's, that's just another layer of difficulty to it. It's like, 
to have a community, you have to have some sort of coherence, but that coherence has to be something outside of yourselves and not just yourselves. Right. But whatever it is, it has to be the right coherence. You know, revolution That's is right. a thing outside the community of which the community could be sacrificed for. But revolution for its own sake, even at the cost of, you know, like betraying your country or killing your neighbors is not right. You know, that's, that's not good. But it's like, well, then if our community can only hold together because it has some sort of bonum, as you said, some highest good, that really is what's good. Yeah. Then it's like, well, how do we figure that one out? Right. That's the that's the real question, isn't it? So to sum up, the, the, the individual uh, needs unity in something larger than himself. But that doesn't mean that the choice that you make for that larger community is going to be necessarily the right one so you can you can unify in your race or you can unify in your economic plan the strata or you can unify in your gender even or your or your nation uh something something like that so what you need to do is press that summum bonum up as high as you can and the the highest thing of course is god and if god really has revealed himself to us then there is a kind of knowledge that we can have of good of the good and that is that is trustworthy you know right. and uh, in the in, then that can inform and even critique our communities and ourselves uh rightly uh so that we can have a unity in that in in that at that level um, and but what the other thing that that does for us is it makes it makes it possible for us to delight in the diversity that we find in all these other areas in our economic strata or in our races or in our nations or in our uh, it makes it possible for you to be different in those places and yet not threatened uh, in your unity and then we can enjoy the differences between these things and enjoy each other's cultures and our each other's uh, presence and so on. Uh, I think we better wrap it up, though. Um, I think sure. you have something you want to tell us about, uh, recommend? Yes, I do. Uh, what I have uh, to recommend is a bit complex to explain, but just bear with me. There's a podcast. Uh, one podcast I like to listen to is a podcast called The Editors, and it's a podcast done by National Review. And I like them because they're uh, the calm people that I listen to. You know, they, they approach things from the right, but they approach things also very calmly and commonsensically. And uh, the the podcast is usually run by Rich Lowry and uh, Rihan Salon and Ian Tuttle and a man named Charles C.W. Cook, mm -hmm. who is quickly becoming somewhat of a hero of mine. He is a very intelligent man. He uh, is British, which is an added bonus. Uh, he uh, or English, more specifically, lends he, a layer of credibility to everything he says. Just a little, just a little. Bit. At least to Americans, it does. <laughs> uh, he studied American like civics and government at Oxford, uh -huh. and he had concluded, and he concluded that it was like uh, a governmental system, a governmental ideal worth saving and worth defending. And he speaks, and he is marvelous. I love listening to him. He's written a book called The Conservatarian Manifesto, which I haven't mm. read, but it's his argument why conservatives and libertarians may need to start joining forces more as a group because uh, maybe they would be a more effective uh -huh. uh, sort of voting presence. Uh -huh. But there's a episode in this podcast, The Editors. It's not the most recent one, and maybe it was a couple back, but it's called Las Vegas. That's the title of the episode, Las Vegas. And it deals with the shooting that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago sure. and, uh, and some other things like hurricanes were happening. 
And in the middle of the conversation about the shooting, they talk about the Second Amendment, they talk about gun control. And Charlie, uh, Charles Cook is somewhat of, this is sort of his wheelhouse. You know, he writes on this a lot and is focused in it a lot. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. My recommendation is this, this episode and a section of it that starts at minute 18 and goes to minute 31. Mm. Right, or like an 1810 to 3110, something like that. But about 18th minute to the 31st minute, there's a section in there where one of the members, I think Michael Dougherty is his name, uh, expresses frustration. And it's a frustration specifically with what we've been talking about. Uh-huh. He gets frustrated that when it comes to gun regulation or like dealing with like mass shootings, there's no, the way he puts it, there's no buffer between the government. And the market is the way he puts it. That the, there's, the buffer like the community that we're talking right, about. Right, some sort of right. community. And when he starts talking about that, Charles starts piping in. But there's a part in there where Charles starts talking exactly about what we're talking about and exactly uh, the problems. And it, it sets a context for the gun debate that is – I don't think people talk about. That's that need of like the communal buffer and mediatory agency uh-huh. that makes the vast – he talks about like fathers teaching sons about guns. And that's why the vast majority of gun owners aren't you know homicidal maniacs or mass shooters mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. But – and he does some other things too. He talks about like uh, the nature of like why we have the guns, why the right still matters. It's like – it's that about 13-minute section in there. The Editor's Podcast, an episode called Las Vegas. You can listen to the whole episode if you want, but for what I'm talking about, it's from the 18th minute to about the 31st minute. Gotcha. When the British guy talks, you need to listen to just about everything that he says because it's absolute gold. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that. And I want to recommend a set of essays by Wendell Berry called The Art of the Commonplace. It's a collection that he uh, has written. It's actually they're excerpts from various larger essays even. Sometimes it's not the entire essay. But uh, if you're interested in the sort of thing we were talking about earlier about the relationship of the small town to the large city, the relationship of, of the state to the community, uh, there are essays in uh, this art of the commonplace that address that as, as well as any I've, I've ever seen. So Wendell Berry's The Art of the Commonplace. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us once again. Uh, this has been From the Center, podcast uh, by the Center for Western Studies. I am Jack Bow. This has been John Hodges, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.